You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. A man named Samuel Snow in Leesburg, Florida, received a check from the Army earlier this week after he was exonerated in October. It was meant to be the final chapter of a story that started over 60 years ago at Fort Lawton in Seattle. Samuel Snow was one of 43 African-American soldiers convicted of rioting and lynching an Italian POW during World War II. It was the largest and longest court-martial of the war. Snow served jail time, was dishonorably discharged, and spent some 60 years living the legacy of that conviction. Welcome to Randall Wallace Presents, and I want to ask you a simple question. What does the story of Sam Snow and a lynching involving an Italian POW from World War II have in common with Richard Nixon? We're going to tell you in this episode. You know, I didn't sleep well at night. I think you, you think about it all day, all, all the time. It never leaves you. I couldn't get no military job. I couldn't work no civil service for for years. But I wasn't bitter because uh, a man hired me as a janitor at a church. Snow heard last month that the U.S. Army would finally make amends. I got the news from uh, Jack Hammer. He told me I was exonerated, and uh, I was glad, and I, I was uplifted. And a burden came from me. So from here, let me fill you in on the details from an NPR uh, broadcast that interviewed a man named Jack Heyman who wrote a book called On American Soil that tells a story of the riot. ...to a book called On American Soil, How Justice Became a Casualty of World War II. Jack Hammond is the author. I asked him to give us a summary of the case as it stood before he began investigating it. Well, for the last 60 years, the conventional wisdom had been that because during World War II, the United States was determined to treat its prisoners of war far more humanely than it ever had, that there had been quite a bit of resentment by many Americans, including many soldiers, it was alleged. When these 43 men were prosecuted, it was under the theory, and this is what all the media reported then, that black soldiers in particular were incensed about the treatment of Italians, saying that they were being treated better than the American black soldiers were. It didn't add up to me that blacks then, now, or at any time uh, might logically be accused of lynching. It's never been – ever in the history of the United States, there's never been another case where blacks were put on trial for lynching. And uh, with that bit of suspicion – we were able to find out that the army itself was suspicious way back in 1944. Hmm. And we discovered after really weeks and months of searching in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., this extraordinary document in thousands of pages that showed that the army back then 
pretty much knew that this case was a sham. And and, and the real story was? Well, the real story was that um, there was a confrontation between a couple of black soldiers and a couple of Italians, but they were drunk young soldiers. And uh, it would have stopped there, but for the encouragement and eventually the criminal participation of a white MP. And Leon Jaworski, it turns out, knew all along about this report, but he, chose to, to pursue it anyway. He was the prosecutor at the time and later became the famous Watergate prosecutor. That's right. Yeah. Leon Jaworski, brilliant young lawyer. The army needed their best to prosecute this large trial. And uh, as we discovered, he was quite eager to advance his career. And in fact, when he got a a verdict in this case in his favor, he did advance his career and became one of the prosecutors of war criminals in Europe after the war. So you wrote a book about this on American soil. And then what happened? Congressman Jim McDermott, a Democrat of Seattle, was given a copy of the book and he called me one day to say, what can Congress do? Of all things, my mother, who lives in San Diego, uh, wrote a letter to her congressman, Duncan Hunter, he was then the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. A Republican from Southern California. Yeah. And the two of them vetted the case. They looked through the, the uh, sources that we had cited and jointly decided to go to the United States Army and say to the Army Board of Review, hey, take a look at this. And the Army Board of Review issued a, a resounding uh, really unprecedented verdict that uh, on appeal saying that the entire case needed to be tossed out. They said that Leon Jaworski had committed egregious error, that was their words, in withholding this uh, report that had been repaired. And he said that all of these defendants had been denied fundamental fairness and declared that they should not only have their convictions tossed out, but they should be paid what was due to them for all their salary and benefits that had been denied to them. Samuel Snow was one of those men. Let's talk a little bit more about this case. After it was overturned, uh, the Seattle newspaper uh, wrote a story on what had happened, titled, Apology 64 Years in the Making for Black Soldiers Wrongly Convicted. Let me quote it from you. The lodging in the, the Army provided for black soldiers on trial for the 1944 riot and lynching of an Italian POW at Magnolia's Fort Lawton was far from luxurious. Samuel Snow was one of the 43 who were stuck in tents or shacks that winter at a camp near Duwamish River, surrounded by barbed wire. Across town, Leon Jaworski, the Army's prosecutor in the case, who would later make headlines as a special prosecutor in the Watergate scandal, was treated to the comforts of the Olympic Hotel in downtown Seattle. Jaworski had evidence that likely would have cleared Snow and all the others, Instead, he sat on it, and the case was nearly forgotten until a book by the Seattle author Jack Heyman proved that the black soldiers didn't lynch the Italian soldier, something Army investigators knew during the largest and longest court-martial of World War II. So now I'm going to read to you from Military Fandom, uh, a website that covers a lot of military history, the story about the riot, the trial, and, uh, and the case that Leon Jaworski put together and the evidence he hid from the defense. On the night of August 14, 1944, an American, an African-American port company at Fort Lawton, Seattle was under orders to ship out to the war zone the next morning. Just after 11 p.m., an intoxicated black soldier and his three companions crossed paths with three Italian prisoners of war. 
Words were exchanged, the black soldiers rushed forward and with one punch an Italian knocked the American out cold. The Italians retreated to adjacent barracks, but the call went out about the confrontation. A number of black soldiers, including Private Samuel Snow, ran after the Italians, wielding boards from a fence that they had broke down. The Italians, who were in their bunks for the night, heard rocks and bricks being thrown against their windows in their dark quarters. They assumed they were being attacked and began running, jumping out of the windows. In the melee, both Italians and United States soldiers were injured. Hearing the commotion and responding to a whistle calling them to defend their fellow soldiers, dozens of black soldiers came out of their barracks. A rumor began that one American was dead, and this was not true. Assuming that they were being attacked, dozens of black soldiers headed into the Italian area, armed with rocks, fence posts, and a couple of knives. Private Clyde Lomax, a white member of the military police corps, was responsible for patrolling the area known as the Colored Area, and was on the scene almost immediately. He loaded the most severely injured American into his Jeep, but delayed transporting him to the hospital. Lomax failed to to request backup from fellow MPs or to notify the chain of command of of the severity of the situation. More than 40 minutes passed before a contingent of MPs arrived. By then, dozens of men were injured. The most seriously injured were all Italian prisoners of war, and they were transported to hospitals for treatment. One Italian spent 16 months recovering from his injuries. The military policemen restored order without taking anyone into custody, and later they claimed it had been too dark to identify any of the participants in the riot. The next morning, Lomax, accompanied by a black MP, discovered the body of prisoner Giuliano Olivati hanging from a noose on the obstacle course. It was an investigation. And by sunset on the day of Olivetti's body being discovered, Colonel Harry Branson, Fort Lawton's commanding officer, had ordered all evidence destroyed. No fingerprints were secured, no footprints saved, no weapons properly cataloged. When Branson tried to ship the black soldiers to San Francisco that same day, he was countermanded after a subordinate reported his actions to the Pentagon. The riot and lynching was front-page news in Seattle and became a major story across the United States. The United States Army sent a young prosecutor, Leon Jaworski of Houston, Texas, to conduct a two-month investigation. During weeks of interrogation, Jaworski's investigators offered immunity to several soldiers who would agree to testify. Most refused, including Samuel Snow and Roy Montgomery. Five black soldiers agreed. However, to testify for the prosecution in exchange for immunity, six decades later, all five were said to have had unrelated grudges against many of the men they accused. Most Italian prisoners of war were unable unable to identify a single black soldier, citing the darkness and confusion. Two, however, offered confident identifications of dozens of the Americans, and Jaworski used those two as his main witnesses. Decades later, a review of the case found that both had been previously identified as unreliably, unreliable security risks by officers of the Military Intelligence Corps. As reports of the riot and lynching reached the Pentagon, General Elliot Cook was sent to Seattle, charged with determining who, if anyone, had failed to prevent the riot and lynching, and Cook conducted an investigation before Jaworski had arrived. Cook was not responsible for helping Jaworski with the criminal investigation, but Jaworski was given access to all of Cook's interrogations and conclusions. In a classified report to Virgil L. Peterson, the Inspector General, Cook concluded that the Fort Lawton commander had botched the initial criminal investigation, recommended Branson's demotion and or reassignment, and ordered that Private Lomax be court-martialed for abandoning his post during the riot and lynching. 
Okay, so after weeks of the investigation, Jaworski decided to charge 43 soldiers with rioting. All the suspects were African-American and charged with a crime with a maximum penalty of life imprisonment. Three of the men, Luther Larkin, Arthur Herks, and William Jones, were also charged with first-degree murder. They faced a possible death sentence. This was the largest number of defendants in a single United States Army trial during World War II. The defendants were provided two lawyers to represent them, and they were given 10 days to prepare their cases. William Beeks, the lead defense attorney, later was appointed as a federal judge. He was assisted by Howard Noyd, a former football player from Iowa. Without much time, the defense lawyers decided to concentrate on trying to save their clients from the first-degree murder charges. They didn't have it 10 days. The nine-member court-martial, all white officers, convened in November, on November 16, 1944. The trial was held six days a week and all day on Thanksgiving. On December 8, 1944, Beeks discovered for the first time that Jaworski had gained access to General Cook's lengthy confidential report. Citing concerns about wartime security, Jaworski repeatedly refused to give the report to the defense, despite a prosecutorial obligation to do so. The court refused to intervene. Beeks never learned about Cook's criticism of Branson, Lomax, and others, information which would likely have discredited most of Jaworski's main witnesses. Jaworski called Lomax to testify against the black soldiers. So for five weeks after that, in what was the longest United States Army court-martial of World War II, the court found 28 of the 43 defendants guilty of rioting. They found two, Luther Larkin and William Jones, guilty of manslaughter, and sentences ranged from six months to 25 years of penal labor. All but one defendant were issued dishonorable discharges at the completion of their prison sentences. Because it was a capital case, an automatic appeal was sent to the U.S. Army's Board of Review, and the appeals were rejected without elaboration. In 1945, at the end of World War II, President Harry Truman was eager to establish a reputation of being helpful to veterans. He began issuing an annual Christmas clemencies, reducing the sentences of thousands of soldiers, including the Fort Lawton defendants. And by 1949, the last Lawton defendant left prison. Now, what has that got to do with Richard Nixon? Absolutely nothing. But Leon Jaworski met in secret with the judge, John Sirica. They hid evidence from the defense. They moved evidence from a grand jury that was supposed to be uh, always kept uh, under seal. They gave it to the special prosecutor, to the uh, House Judiciary Committee. They had a guy, John Doerr, who was meeting with them in private for months with Henry Ruth uh, prior to that evidence being given. And then John Doerr, for whatever reason, decided not to investigate anything, just put the evidence together, basically as it had been handed to him by Leon Jaworski's uh, staff. And that is what forced Richard Nixon from office. Now tell me something, does that sound any different than what just happened to 43 African-American soldiers who ended up only getting $789 for being court-martialed wrongfully and accused of a crime that they did not commit, even though there was murky things there because there was a riot, just like there was murky things there because there was a break-in by people way down the line from Richard Nixon. Before I go, I'm going to let NPR talk to the congressman about what they wanted to do in this case and the author of the book tell you the real truth about conventional wisdom. And I hope it makes you think. Because wrong is wrong, whether it happens to a president or to a buck private. This case was always about righting a wrong. 
It was about getting justice for somebody who had been wronged by the government. And I'm pleased that we were able to get this brought to their attention and get a reversal of the conviction. But sending him $725 after having had a bad conduct discharge, couldn't get into college, all the losses over the course of time, it seems to me, is just compounding the injustice. Jack Hammond, the writer who spent years delving into the case of those young African-American soldiers, he gives us our parting words tonight. Here is what Hammond has to say about the exoneration of Samuel Snow and the others. The first draft of history is always written by those in power, but it's never the only draft of history. There's always the stories of so many other people who weren't then in power, and for me, it's kind of a, an exciting you know, life lesson uh, that it's really important not to take the conventional wisdom uh, for granted forever. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.